Yeah, I think um, I think I've heard of that as well called, you know, euthanization and how many people, if they're experiencing some extreme degree of trauma, they really want to uh, just find a peaceful way to kind of end that. Um, for example, I know, um, actually, I, I can talk a little bit. There, there's this uh, Indian movie, part of Bollywood, called Gazarish, and it essentially talks about the story of how euthanization in India is actually, I don't know if it's, in the movie at least they said it was illegal, I don't know if that's actually the case, but that resulted in this man named uh, Ethan who, uh, who he was pretty much paralyzed from the neck down. He wanted to, you know, end his life, but he wasn't able to do so legally because of, you know, because of euthanization being illegal. So he had to kind of uh, use his, <laughs> that, that's actually kind of ironic. He used his podcast to gain popular support for uh, essentially making euthanization legal. And that's how he kind of essentially took his life. But um, yeah, I think we can move on to a different topic. Um, you talked about how you were an NCAA Division One basketball player, which is obviously very, very impressive. Um, because from my limited no basketball knowledge, D one is the highest, correct? Uh, that's before. correct. Yeah, yeah, so that's that's awesome, actually. If you could talk a little bit about that, uh, you know, I, I, a, a bunch of members on our audience uh, um, are definitely interested in basketball. We've talked with uh, what was his name? Uh, his name was Anthony. Uh, he was a sports commentator and. He was also super interested in basketball. And if you could also mention how tall you are, that'd be awesome. Yeah, I, I am six foot eight inches tall. Um, wow. I am I am the the oldest of three boys. I have a brother who is six foot seven, who was a pitcher for the University of Notre Dame's baseball team. And then I have another brother who's six foot six, who was actually drafted by the Cleveland Cavaliers in the National Basketball Association. And then my dad was six five. So I, I kind of joke that if you sat behind our family in church growing up, there wasn't a prayers chance you were gonna see anything that was going on, uh, you uh -huh. know, in front of you with that. But um, I, I, our five foot eight inch mother was really the boss. You know, it didn't matter how big, tall, strong we were, whatever mom said, that's the way it went. So I was actually very lucky. I, I played high school basketball uh, in Chicago and was, was fortunate to play against a lot of really good competition. And and, and, and like I said, I, I'm kind of old. There was a player by the name of Isaiah Thomas who I played high school basketball against. He was in the same conference that I was. He went on to play at the University of Indiana under Bobby Knight and uh, won a national championship there. He then went on to the, play for the Detroit Pistons in the NBA and won, won a couple NBA championships. Uh, my big claim to fame is that I played against Michael Jordan. Um, it was my senior year in uh, in college. It, it was Jordan's freshman year. And uh, this was, and again, this was a long time ago. This was 1982. And I, we, my team, the Citadel, played uh, in a tournament in Charlotte, North Carolina at the Charlotte Coliseum. And it was, a, it was kind of a round, it was four teams, uh, North Carolina, North Carolina State, the Citadel and Furman, and we we played a round robin. So on Friday night, I got to play against Michael Jordan and, and his team, who went on to win the national championship that year. They were the national champions. And then on Saturday night, 
I got to play against Jim Valvano, Jimmy V, and the North Carolina State team, who the following year, 1983, they won the national championship. So in, in the course of one weekend, I was very fortunate to play against two national championship teams. And then kind of a, another funny story re regarding that, uh, my brother who uh, was the pitcher at Notre Dame went on to be and still is to this day, a high school basketball coach in Chicago. And he actually coached Michael Jordan's two sons. And he tells the story one day he's at practice, it's toward the end of practice and he's teaching a play to his team and he looks up and nobody's paying attention to him at all. So he kind of looks where the team is, is looking and it was over at the door the, to, to get into the gym. And Michael Jordan had come into the gym as a, as a dad, you know, I'm here to pick up my kids after practice, not, you know, not as a basketball player or anything like that. And so my brother looked at him and said, Hey, Michael, you know, you're a little bit of a distraction. Would you mind stepping out in the hall until practice is over? And Jordan and his wife were just super, super people. They were, you know, Hey coach, I'm really sorry. You know, I, I get it. I'll, I'll wait out in the hall until practice is over and my brother kind of thought later you know i'm probably the only coach in the history of basketball that that's ever kicked michael jordan out of practice you know so it was it was kind of a a, a neat little story and and all the parents of the of the team members took turns hosting the pre-game meal either at their house or at a restaurant or something like that and when it was the jordan's turn they opened up their their house. They're, it's really more of a compound than anything. So my brother's been to Jordan's house. They, they had a catered meal for the team before the game in their indoor gymnasium that was attached to the house. And it was just a, a great experience for my brother. And like I said, Jordan and his wife, just super people. They didn't try to, you know, hey, I'm Michael Jordan. I'm gonna tell you how to coach the team. They didn't do that at all. They just kind of were like, we're mom and dad. We're coming to the games to support our kids. You know, I just happen to be Michael Jordan. I think those, like the people at the top level, at least from what I've seen, uh, there's obviously some exceptions, but I think a lot of them are really, really humble. And it, especially when you place them in, you know, kind of a more common people kind of environment, they, they really maintain that humility. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason why they're such big champions. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so I think what we can talk a little bit more about now is your four truths, because you mentioned how these four truths are kind of what you're using to um, focus on essentially the healthy aspects of being sick and uh, coming out of it stronger and what you're also teaching to other people to kind of help them when they finally get over their obstacle be a better person than what they were going into it um so if you could talk a little bit you know about those four truths and uh how you kind of live your life with through them sure so i i, I call them you know my four truths they're they're not mine i mean it, it's not something that you know that, that i own or anything like that and so as, as i'm going through this i guess as, as your audience hears them you know if if they resonate with you if they work for you then take them and and use them as part of your life if you know, if one or two of them works, then then take those one or two and and use them to to help in your life. I I call these sort of the 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 bedrock of my soul. They're they're a, they're a good place 
to start to develop a quality life off of. And, and I have them on a post-it note that I have here in my office and, and I, I've written them out, they're one sentence each. And so I, I see them multiple times during the day. And so they constantly get reinforced in my mind. So number one is control your mind or your mind is going to control you. When I was in high school, I had three knee surgeries. And I remember when I went back playing, my, my brain was putting all kinds of negative thoughts into my mind, you know, things like, hey, you've had these three surgeries and you're probably a step slower on the basketball court or college coaches aren't going to be interested in recruiting you, you know, to play at their college or university. And I remember thinking, no, wait a minute, I'm still playing at an elite level and college coaches are still contacting me about playing at their college or university. So I realized very early, probably 15 years old, that, that I needed to change that narrative. I needed to flip that switch and say, you know, and put something positive in there to replace those negative thoughts. I mean, if you think about it, uh, on any given day, it's estimated that we all have about 60 to 70,000 thoughts that pass through our, through our brain, many of which we don't even pay attention to, but our brains can hold one thought at a time. Why would you wanna make that a negative thought? I mean, I remember when I was in college and, you know, people in, in classes and stuff like that, they would go out and party the night before uh, an exam. And then they would come into this exam, maybe hungover or something like that. And what's the first person, what's the first thing they would say? It would be like, oh man, you know, I'm, re I'm really gonna blow this test. I'm, I'm tired, I'm hungover, I'm dehydrated, whatever, whatever word you wanna use. And I'm thinking, why would you immediately go to the negative? Why would you, wouldn't you say, hey, I paid attention in class during, during you know, the last six, eight weeks, whatever. I'm ready for this test. I know just as much as everybody else, but we don't. We always want to go to the negative. Your mind can hold one thought at a time. Why would you want to make that a negative thought? So that's the first one. Control your mind or it's going to control you. The second one is embrace the pain and the difficulty that we all experience in life and use that pain and difficulty to make you a stronger and more determined individual. Our brains are hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort and to seek pleasure. And so to the brain, the, the status quo, the way things are right now is good and should not be you know, messed with. It should just be left alone. The problem with that is the only way we're going to get better, the only way we're going to improve is to step outside those comfort zones and to do the things that we don't like or that make us uncomfortable. And, you know, because our brains are hardwired to avoid pain and discomfort, people move toward things that they shouldn't. They make bad decisions. They turn to alcohol, they turn to drugs, they turn to bad behavior to try to mitigate the pain in their lives. And what I always recommend, and I try to do this every single day of my life, is to do one thing that makes you uncomfortable, that makes you nervous, that scares you, that is potentially embarrassing. Because if you, and it doesn't have to be a big thing, it could be something very, very small. I don't like going to the dentist, but the other day I picked up the phone and I called and made my six month appointment to, to have my cleaning done. That, that was a little scary for me. I, I didn't like doing that. If you do those small, little uncomfortable things every day, when the big things in life hit us and they hit all of us, you know, we end up losing somebody who's close to us or, you know, we, we drop out of school or we lose our job. We, we've all heard the stories. 
If you do those small things every day, when the big things in life hit, you'll be much more resilient to handle those things. And I guess what I'm, what I'm suggesting is, instead of running away from pain, do just the opposite. Take that pain, flip it inside of you, burn it as fuel, use it as energy to make you a stronger and more resolute individual. So that's number two. Number three is more of what I call a legacy truth. And it's this, what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. I think it's important regardless of what stage of life we're in, whether we're just starting out or you know we're middle-aged or we're coming to the end of our life, whatever that ends up being, I think it's important for all of us to kind of examine our lives. I actually have friends who read the obituary page uh, in the newspaper or online every day, just one, to keep themselves humble, and two, to realize that someday somebody is gonna be reading their obituary. And I remember when, when I found out I was having my leg amputated and I had these tumors in my lungs, I went with my wife to, to the mortuary, uh, to the cemetery and to our church, and I planned my funeral. And because I go on podcasts and I do talks that talk about motivation and the need to keep moving forward, I actually got some brushback from people because of that, who somehow thought that by me planning my funeral, that was in some way defeatist. And, and I had to tell them, it's like, you know, the last time I checked, we're all going to die. I don't think anybody's working on a cure for life right now. Every one of us is going to die, but not every one of us is going to live. And I heard a Native American Blackfoot proverb years ago that went like this. When you were born, you cried and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a way so that when you die, the world cries and you rejoice. That's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. Don't get, don't get me wrong. I'm not looking to hasten my demise in any way, shape or form. But I think it's important for all of us at some point in time to think about the end game. You know, what are people going to say about you at your funeral? I guess maybe more importantly, what do you want people to say about you at your funeral? And that's going to be determined on how you live your life. So that's number three. And then number four is this. As long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. And the way that resonates with me uh, is this. Someday my pain is going to end. It may end through surgery. It may end through medication. Quite frankly, it may end when I die. But if I quit, if I give up, if I give in to pain, then pain will always be a part of my life. Yeah, those are some really inspiring four rules to live by. And um, I think I think it's really important for high schoolers to kind of recognize that, you know, they don't need to necessarily implement all four full force at one time immediately. What they can do is, uh, so that way they're actually way more consistent with it for our audiences listening is, take your time, go slowly, you know, start, start by just looking at number one and trying to implement number one. Do that for, you know, maybe a few months and try to gradually implement rule number one more and more into your life. And then after you've become disciplined with number one and can stay consistent with that, then move on to number two, then move on to number three, then move on to number four and do the same process for each of those. And in a couple years time, you'll look back and say, wow, I've incorporated all four of these into my life and 
I'm extremely consistent with them. I haven't let go of any of them because I implemented them gradually. So um, Mr. Tucker, we're actually kind of winding down and approaching the last couple of minutes of our podcast here. So if you could, you know, uh, this is the question that we ask every person who comes on to our podcast. And that's if you can provide any advice for high schoolers listening, uh, whether it be about, you know, combating uh, specific uh, diseases or, you know, just becoming a better person overall. It can be about basketball. It can be about sports. It can be about academics, whatever, whatever you think is the best life advice to give to high schoolers right now. What is something that, what, what, what is the advice that you would give? I, I guess I'll answer that if you don't mind with, with a story. Um, and, and I, I, I've always been a big fan of Westerns when I was growing up, you know, my mom and dad used to let me stay up late and watch, you know, and this probably isn't going to mean a lot to you guys. This was long before your time, but Gunsmoke and Bonanza. My favorite was Wild Wild West. 1993, the movie Tombstone came out, and it was a it was a huge blockbuster. Uh, it starred Val Kilmer as a man by the name of John Doc Holliday and Kurt Russell as a man by the name of Wyatt Earp. Now, Doc Holliday was called Doc because he was a dentist by trade, but pretty much Doc Holliday was a gunslinger and a card shark. And Wyatt Earp, his entire adult life, had been uh, a lawman. And these two men from entirely opposite backgrounds come together and form this very close friendship. And at the end of, of the movie Tombstone, uh, Doc Holliday is dying at a hospital in Glenwood Springs, Colorado, which is about three hours from where I live. The, the real Doc Holliday died in that hospital and he's buried in the Glenwood Springs Cemetery. And Wyatt at this point in his life is destitute. He has no money, he has no job, he has no prospects for a job. So every day he comes to play cards with Doc and the two men pass the time that way. And in this almost last scene in the movie, the two men are talking about what they want out of life. And Doc says, I was in love with my cousin when I was younger, but she joined a convent over the affair, but she's all that I ever wanted. And he looks at Wyatt and he says, what about you, Wyatt? What do you want? And Wyatt says, I just want to lead a normal life. And Doc looks at him and says, there's no normal, there's just life. And get on with living yours. I mean, I know people who are probably sitting out there listening to us and saying, you know, I'm just kind of holding back. And, you know, when this happens, then I'll have a normal life. Or when that happens, I'll have a successful life. Or when this occurs, I'll have a significant life. I guess what I'd like to leave your audience with, and, and, and I know this is probably maybe a little bit over the heads of high school students, but, but, but I, don't, I think it's really important to, to kind of grasp this at a, at a young age. What I would say to you is don't wait. Don't wait for life to come to you. Get out there, find the reason you were put on the face of this earth, use your unique gifts and talents and live that reason. Because if you do at the end of your life, I'm gonna promise you two things. Number one, you're gonna be a whole lot happier and number two, you're going to have a whole lot more peace in your heart. Makes perfect sense to me. And I think it's definitely something that, you know, I'm going to try to slowly incorporate into my life. Uh, but other than that, it's been a really excellent podcast. Great talking to you, Mr. Tucker. Thank you so much for all of your uh, time and all of your insights. And to our listeners, be sure to stay tuned for future episodes. Thank you all, and see you next time. High School Not So Much A Musical is hosted by Ayush Agarwal and Nitin Jaladanki. Narration by Samhit Padala. 
music from Louis Luong Relaxation Cafe, Tune Pocket, and Infraction. If you like the show, please recommend it to your friends and family. Thank you for listening and see you next time.